1987, Lethal Weapon took everyone by surprise when it hit theaters. It was like a bomb went off and reignited the buddy cop genre with a bang. The perfect mix of an established director, two lead actors with undeniable chemistry, and an up-and-coming screenwriter's knack for snappy, odd-couple banter created a formula that was ripe for a follow-up. So when Warner Brothers decided to make a sequel, they went all out. They pumped up the budget, added more comedic elements, and dialed down the dark and gloomy tones from the original. The result is an 80s flick sequel that was so insanely anticipated, they unleashed it right in the heart of the 1989 summer blockbuster movie season. So jump into the Murtaugh family station wagon, avoid going through the drive-thru, and be sure to bring the cougar ants if you have diplomatic immunity, as Nicholas Pepin and I discuss Lethal Weapon 2 from 1989 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Mel Gibson. Danny Glover. Come on, let's go, Rod. Oh, no, we shouldn't go. Let's go. Let's go. Come on, Rod. Don't be a killjoy. Come on, we're back. We're bad. You're black. I'm mad. Man. Hey, 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 listen. If we're going, shouldn't I have a gun? No. Now, get ready for something lethal. I'm surprised you haven't heard about me. You know, I got a bad reputation. I mean, sometimes I just go nuts like now. Because the magic is back. Watch out the window, no. You all right, man? Yeah, I'm okay. Where were you, man? You're my partner or what? Why didn't you follow me down? Yeah, why didn't you follow him down? Shut up! I'm seven floors up! Lethal Weapon 2. You go first. I'm really too old for this. You go first. I'll cover you. Hello, movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. On each episode, I'm joined by an 80s Flick-loving guest co-host to talk about one of the great and sometimes not-so-great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser-known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now-defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter which 80s flick we choose for each episode, we have a lot of fun sharing first-time watch memories, discussing our favorite iconic scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe and follow 80s Flick Flashback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And while you're there, leave us a stellar written review and a five-star rating. You can also support the show by following us on our social media pages. Just search for 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And don't forget to check out our website, 80sflickflashback.com as well. If you want to take your support to the next level, you can become a financial partner for less than $10 a month. The link to financially support the podcast is located in our episode show notes. And while you're there, be sure to check out more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into today's episode. Thanks for listening. Now, on with the show. Almost did my impression. Diplomatic immunity. Diplomatic immunity. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome in, everybody. So glad to have you for another episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. It's going to be a good one. I know we say it every time, and I haven't failed you yet, right? Uh, don't answer that. But anyway, <laughs> we're continuing our Summer of Sequels series. We've hit some great ones, and this one I'm just as excited about. 
Nicholas and I discussed the first uh, Lethal Weapon, and now he's back from Pop Culture Roulette to talk about the sequel that is as good, if not maybe better than the original. I don't know. We'll kind of talk about it. But how you doing, Nicholas? Well, I just finished up my uh, tuna sandwich, so I'm all good. <laughs> tuna? <laughs> <laughs> but yes, we're talking about Lethal Weapon 2, came out in 1989. Richard Donner returns as the director. Murtaugh and Riggs are back. And we add in Leo Getz as a fun character and some naughty, naughty South Africans that uh, play the bad guys. So... All right, well, let's jump in, Nicholas. When did you see Lethal Weapon 2 for the very first time? Uh, again, you know, I, uh, this seems to be a running theme for every episode <laughs> I do with you. I can't remember. I know it was, <laughs> I know it would have been a VHS. I, uh-huh. I definitely, I don't think I would have, I know I didn't go see it in the theaters. I'm fairly certain that I saw both of the Lethal Weapon movies before because I feel like I did go see the third one in the theaters. Okay. Yeah, I know I went and saw the fourth one, but I, mm-hmm. I feel like I saw the first two before I ever saw the third. Yeah, so it would have been in the in the you know, not too long after it came out on on VHS back mm-hmm. in you know ninety you know so I probably yeah. saw it in ninety ninety one somewhere in there because that that movie would have been too big for me not to have you know definitely and you know definitely in high school when I had a little bit more freedom to rent from the theater <laughs> you know, from from blockbuster than i would have you know as a younger kid as a yeah 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 i was trying to remember too I, like i don't think i saw this one in the theater like i didn't see lethal weapon in the theater and i don't think i saw the second one in the theater but like you i remember seeing the third one and i remember going to the movies on a date uh to see the third one and my date was not that excited about seeing a lethal weapon movie but anyway that's an, another story for another time but <laughs> which unfortunately uh, the way you set this up we'll never get to the third one yeah exactly exactly still worth watching though it's definitely not as good as the first two and the fourth one is definitely not as good as the first two like it, it the fourth one is one i think i've only seen the fourth one once maybe twice but i've seen the first three multiple times i i would probably be in the same boat yeah yeah and that was the uh, film debut of Jet Li, or American film debut of Jet Li in the fourth one. So it's almost like I almost want to go back and watch it just because he's in it. And that's really the only thing about it that I kind of uh, remember. I would, I probably would have watched more of the Lethal Weapon movies uh, recently because I was rewatching the second one for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm, you and I are actively working on another project for Laramie. <laughs> yes, we are. So I'm, I've been spending a lot of time trying to find movies that are very hard to find yes uh, yes i'm pretty sure i saw this one on video same same of you i'm sure i rented it i'm sure i had the vhs uh when i along with the uh the first lethal weapon how long has it been since you watched it before you watching it for the podcast i know i watched it a couple months ago when we almost recorded this <laughs> and then i so i, I rewatched it again then and then mm-hmm because I always try to watch the movie twice before I sit down and record. Yeah. Um, so I watched it again last night, so it was a little more fresher. But mm-hmm. yeah, Lethal Weapon, like as much as I enjoy both the, the well, the series in general, mm-hmm. like it's not a series that I think to sit down and watch. And because I don't remember if it's available for streaming right now, because I have them on DVD. I just pulled them out on DVD. Yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't even bother to check to see if they were streaming. They're anyway. they're on Max. Oh, are they? Mm-hmm. I probably should have just watched it on Max instead of on my DVD <laughs> then. 
but I already had pulled the DVDs out. So, right. you know, I, you know, it was, it was, uh, there, but I just, for whatever reason, I just don't think to rewatch this series as often as I should, but rewatching yeah. it yeah. this time, I'm like, why don't I? Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, I definitely think of lethal weapon, like, of course, a- around Christmas, because now the whole die hard lethal weapon or Christmas movie. So I tend to want to watch it then because it has kind of the, the Christmassy kind of feels to it. And then I want to watch the second one right after it, but because it's Christmas, I'm like, well, I'm sticking with my Christmas movie. So I don't, but the last time, I think the last time that I watched it all the way through was probably over like maybe 15 years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that. Because I think back before it was streaming when we just had HBO as like one of our cable channels, I think it was on, maybe it was on demand before you had streaming, but they had like all four of the movies and I wanted to go back and watch. I was homesick. I had like some kind of uh, respiratory infection or whatever. And I was like, I just want to watch a franchise. And so I started with the first one, watched the second, watched the third one. Maybe I didn't get to the fourth one. I don't remember. Uh, but that's the last time I really remember like sitting down and watching it all the way through so much that there were certain parts I was getting three and two mixed up. Like there were certain things I was expecting to see in two that are actually in the third one when I was watching it again. I was having that problem with the first one <laughs> because there are certain things that happen in the second one that I'm like, I thought that happened in the first. No. Okay. Yeah. 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 All right, well, let's uh, talk a little bit about story origin and pre-production. This one has uh, a little fun ride. As I mentioned in the intro, the original Lethal Weapon was written by the great Shane Black, who became another great director, is also a good screenwriter. But it was it was one of it was like his first real script that he had sold. So of course they wanted to have him back for the sequel. And so this is going to talk a little bit about uh, why that didn't work. <laughs> I don't know how much you research you did on this already, Nicholas. Not on the screenwriting. Okay. Um, and some other stuff. But... Okay. All right. Cool. So, of course, Warner Brothers and the producers wanted to make a sequel after the first one became a hit. They asked Shane Black to write the script for the sequel. Despite dealing with some personal issues, he agreed and teamed up with his friend Warren Murphy, who co-created the character Remo Williams, to work on the script. The original title was called Play Dirty, and they thought the script was brilliant. However, it was rejected by the producer, studio, and director Richard Donner because it was considered too dark and violent. In their version, the main character, Riggs, dies, but the studio wanted to keep him alive for potential future sequels. They also wanted more comedy, while Black's draft focused on courage and heroics, with Riggs ultimately sacrificing himself to protect partner Murtaugh and his family. When Black's script was rejected, he felt like he had let the producers down, He initially offered to return his payment, but his agent convinced him not to do it. Black decided not to rewrite the script and quit the project after working on it for six months. Later, he expressed his dislike for the third and fourth films as well because they changed Riggs' character so much. But the final version of the script was written by Jeffrey Boehm and was quite different from Black's draft, except for the scene where the stilt house is destroyed. That's like the only thing of the two scripts that's about the same. In Black's version, the character of Leo Getz had a minor role, but in the final script, he was expanded. There were also more violent scenes, including the South Africans being even more vicious. In one scene, a female police officer is tortured to death, and Riggs himself is tortured, I guess somewhat like he was in the first one. Black's script had a big brush fire as the setting for the final battle, where Riggs eventually dies from his wounds. The last scene was Riggs saying goodbye to Murtaugh on a videotape. Black believed this death scene was beautiful and would make the audience cry. Unfortunately, 
the producers didn't like it and he's never released the script uh for it to be anybody to read the original script for it well i i can say i'm kind of glad they didn't go shane black's way yeah uh, yeah because yeah that doesn't really sound i mean yeah who knows maybe in an alternate universe we see that movie and maybe mm-hmm. we maybe we like it but i just i i like this one you know i like the way it panned out and mm-hmm. you know, i do enjoy the third one and i didn't hate the fourth one i don't necessarily like it as much as the other ones yeah but, yeah you know um, but, uh, but yeah I'm, yeah yeah go ahead. dark and gritty and killing off your main character like yeah yeah well he did say like i was reading a little bit and you know i kind of condensed this a little bit but he did say come back and say that he was going through some personal issues it's kind of a dark time for him so of course whenever you're going through that kind of personal crisis or whatever it tends to come through in your art and your work and so i'm sure he was you know some of that kind of rubbed off into the what he was writing about so he probably wasn't into writing much comedy which i think the comedy is what kind of sets this one apart it is it is funnier than the first one um which works and it makes a little bit more as a more entertaining but it it it's not as it doesn't have the drama it's got the suspense and the action, but you know, there's a lot of drama in the first one with Riggs and, you know, being suicidal and uh, grieving his wife and all that kind of stuff. So that's that, like I said, they played that down a little bit where it's not as on in the forefront and allowed the comedy with Leo gets, especially to kind of um, work more. Well, see, and I intentionally didn't do research because I had a question of myself mm-hmm. while I was watching this movie because I saw Shane Black. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, Tim's going to tell me all about it tomorrow, so I can just wait. <laughs> um, because I was watching it going, there is no reference to Christmas in this movie. Nope. How, mu- how much of this did Shane Black actually write? Right, right. <laughs> so really, like I said, the only thing that they kept from his original script was them tearing down the house on stilts at the end. So I'm sure there are probably some other elements that they kept, but the the rewrite... Um, yeah, so we'll talk about that. So Jeffrey Boehm, who had previously worked on films like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and The Lost Boys, was brought in for rewrites. He had to mix together two different drafts, one with hard-boiled action and another with more comedy, to create the final script. However, he faced constant rewriting during production due to director Donner's improvisations and demands for changes. Uh, Robert Mark Kamen, another screenwriter, mentioned in an interview that he worked on Lethal Weapon 2 and 3 as an uncredited writer particularly adding parts with the South African villains. He received credit for his work on Lethal Weapon 3 because he contributed more to that sequel than the second one. Uh, and one of the other changes was initially the character of Rika was supposed to survive and the last scene would show Riggs and Rika having Thanksgiving dinner with the Murtals. However, the director decided to kill off Rika to give Riggs more motivation to take down the South African drug smugglers. I did kind of hate that she died at the end spoilers already but you know you yeah. this podcast you 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 know you know what we're gonna do that was probably the one part of the movie that i when i remember watching it for the first time that i was i was like come on man he lost his first wife then he meets another girl you know another woman and now they didn't kill they killed her and i didn't like the whole tie-in of like they killed his first wife and then they killed the second like that was a little too much too much of a connectivity between the first and the second one for me but yeah i mean well since we're there already yeah um, i mean i there that that trope of of the 80s and i know they still do it somewhat <laughs> but definitely right. hardcore in the 80s where like he met her mm-hmm. 
And then, you know, by the end of the, like, not even on the first, like barely into the first date, he's already like <laughs> madly in love with her. And they're right. going to spend their whole life together. And then, you know, she dies. Right. But that, that it just, it was like, oh my, really? Come on. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. like how that, so like that part, like kind of felt so forced and yeah. Yeah. out of place. Cause you're like, he already has now. If you had done one or the other, but doing both really felt forced. Like mm-hmm. then, then the South African guy going, "Oh, I, I'm the one who killed your wife." Mm-hmm. Seems so far out of left field as well. Yeah. So like, yeah. if they had just done that, it would have been okay. You've now given him the motivation, right? To do go after you even harder, right? Right. Or you had just done the you killed his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. You know, now he's gonna go after you. But like you said, it just seems too convenient yeah do whatever yeah. you know that was very convenient was, yeah and it was uh, now i say that but yeah we, st- we I, still, I still love like this movie. yeah exactly yeah like, yeah we're gonna talk about we don't like it but that doesn't change our love for it right um but yeah i was i was even thinking too like i remember watching it this time because knowing i remembered that uh you know the one the the hitman basically or the assassin the south african assassin i can't remember his name i will get to it and we get into casting but I knew that he makes this connection that he killed uh, Riggs's for, you know, wife. So I was waiting for like when they've discovered the Cougar ants and they're starting to put the pieces together. I was waiting for milk for Riggs to have some like, you know, I worked on a case similar like this a couple of years ago, but he doesn't, you know, for him to have been, been involved enough for them to want to kill him to not go forward. You would think that that would, you know, ring a couple of bells in his mind when they discover this stuff. So early in the movie. Yeah, it, it wouldn't have taken but a couple throwaway lines earlier, mm-hmm. you know, when he's doing when he's doing the straitjacket thing. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, hey, also, by the way, I seem to remember this case I was working on. <laughs> right. And rather than just like, you know, we're almost at the end of the movie. Oh, by the way. Mm-hmm. And now these messages. <sighs> what seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world, so many issues, I don't think I can bear it. Well, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR! But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up. That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. Welcome to the Summer of Superman. Get ready for an electrifying journey through the iconic tale that shook the world of superheroes three decades ago. Moving Panels presents a special series dedicated to the monumental event that changed the course of comic book history, the death and return of Superman. Join us as we dive deep into the pages of one of the most impactful stories ever told, exploring the Man of Steel's ultimate sacrifice and his triumphant resurrection. But that's just the beginning. Experience the thrilling animated movies, The Death of Superman and Reign of the Superman that brought this epic story to life on the screen. In each episode, we will dissect every chapter, dissecting the emotions and going behind the scenes of this unforgettable saga and its animated counterparts. From the impact on Superman's friends and allies to the worldwide mourning that ensued, moving panels will leave no stone unturned, delivering a comprehensive exploration of this milestone in comic book history. 
So grab your cape and join us this summer for the Summer of Superman on Moving Panels, where we honor the 30th anniversary of the death and return of Superman, episode by episode, reliving the awe, the heartache, and the undying legacy of the man who inspired millions. Don't miss a single installment of this thrilling podcast event. Subscribe now to Moving Panels on your favorite podcast platform and be a part of the Summer of Superman. Let's jump into casting. So we're not going to talk about Mel Gibson or Danny Glover because, of course, we covered them extensively in the initial uh, Lethal Weapon episode. And you may look back and realize if you go through our list of episodes, my list of episodes, that we've actually done Lethal Weapon twice, which is kind of a technicality because Nicholas and I talked about it on as my episode a couple of years ago. But I had done an episode with Totally Rad Christmas with Jerry D on lethal weapon as well and so i I did that as a replay episode uh this past year while i was out of the country so you can listen to both of those episodes because we cover some of the same things but a lot of different so just so you know if you want to go back and listen to either one but uh definitely listen to the one with me and nicholas because we're doing this one as well so uh just want to throw that out there but they're both there if you just need a double helping of lethal weapon one i got you covered i'd prefer you to listen to mine (laughs) of course you would yeah uh one thing i'll say about mel gibson which is on the in the uh in the trivia was during production, Richard Donner was shocked when Mel Gibson confided that he was drinking five pints of beer for breakfast every day. Despite his alcohol problems, Gibson was known for his professionalism and punctuality. I was like, wow, that's, you know, we know that got him in trouble much later in life and we won't get into that whole story. But yeah, I thought that was interesting that he had drank that much while making this movie. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So the next on the list, probably the person that, had the breakout role from this one is Joe Pesci. And he'd done movies before this, but this is the one that I think really put him on the map. Of course, he's known for portraying tough, volatile characters in a variety of genres and for his collaborations with Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese in the Raging in Raging Bull from 1980, Goodfellas in 90, Casino in 95, The Irishman in 2019. He also appeared in Once Upon a Time in America in 84, Moonwalker, the Michael Jackson movie, I guess, video in 1988, JFK in 91, A Bronx Tale in 93, and The Good Shepherd in 2006. Of course, his comedy roles include such films as the first two installments of the Home Alone franchise and my personal favorite, My Cousin Vinny from 1992. Probably my favorite Joe Pesci movie. I was thinking about that because, I mean, Leo gets the the whole Joe Pesci character, Mm -hmm. I think is probably one of my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to decide if this was my favorite or Home Alone was my favorite. Yeah. My cousin Vinny, my cousin Vinny would be up there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But and I like some of his weirder ones like Eight Heads in the Duffel Bag. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I, I just I really, you know, I really enjoy his Leo gets. <laughs> yeah, so speaking of that, the Leo's okay, 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 shtick was based as he said on a Disneyland employee that he saw giving directions to guests at Fantasyland. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I thought that was awesome. Uh, Originally, Leo was going to be an oily, effeminate character, but Joe Pesci didn't want to play him that way. He pitched the idea of making Leo the all-too-eager-to-please complete with the okay-okay-okay ad-libs. He mentioned it to Richard Donner. Donner laughed and said, yeah, do that. Uh, The phrase is referred to also in Home Alone, if you haven't noticed, 
by having the phrase O-O-H apostrophe K plumbing painted on a van driven by Joe Pesci's character. So uh, okay plumbing. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I think that Joe Pesci was right and he he fixed what could have been a, a throwaway character. Well yeah. and then you know he was such a big part of the or became such a big part of the second one. Yeah. That yeah. They they wrote him into the third and fourth mm-hmm. one. You know, they, yeah, exactly. Joe Pesci is great, but it's a it's a great character that he created as well, just to be that and one review I was reading like uh, Roger Ebert's review of the movie. And one thing that he liked about the movie, which made sense going back and rewatching it is he said, the, the, the thing that this movie did right was you see the development of the character between Riggs and Murtaugh after what they went through in the first one, you don't want to see them bickering back and forth. Like none of that happened in the first movie. So bring in Leo gets becomes this character that they can, they both have, you know, like, this angst with, so you have that kind of odd, once again, the odd couple, but now it's Riggs and Murtaugh are on the ones are, are the teaming up against Leo Getz of being the, I guess, annoying in this sense, but the one that they don't get along with. So by transferring that comedy to a new character, you still get that banter, but it's not with the two characters that should have moved on from that in the first one. They still have their disagreements, of course, but oh, yeah. definitely not. This is this. You see their relationship has evolved from the first one to the second, which I thought, which I thought was good. Story time. No, I hadn't, I hadn't put it in those terms, but that makes sense and mm-hmm. it absolutely works. Yeah, I mean, the three of their, you know, I was saying like from the get go in this movie, in that beginning car chase scene, mm-hmm. like the yeah. chemistry yeah. between Mel Gibson and Danny Glover is evident. Yeah. Like, yes, the fact that you know you just see like those two work so well together. Yeah, yeah, and then and then to bring because nor sometimes when you do that, like you've got the two characters that work real well and you're, you know, doing a sequel, you want to bring in another character. You got to mm-hmm. make it bigger. You got to go. Right. It right. ruins the chemistry. Oh yeah. Yeah. But that didn't yeah. happen here, but that didn't happen here. It actually yeah. it helped make it better. And, mm-hmm. You know. mm-hmm. But fun fact, Joe Pantoliano was the first choice to play Leo, but he turned it down due to a schedule conflict with the last of the finest in 1990. Danny DeVito was also considered for the role of Leo Gates. Uh, you know, in a different world, I could have seen either one of them, maybe. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think they made the right choice. Oh, of course, Pesci. of course. I just think it's interesting. Those were the two that were in contention as well. But yeah, I mean, I've never seen Raging Bull. I hear he's really good in it. I've never seen Once Upon a Time in America. He had a small part in uh, Easy Money with Rodney Dangerfield, which is another comedy in the early '80s. So we got Joss Ackland as Arjun Rudd, the consulate of for the South African government there in Los Angeles. So Joss Ackland is a distinguished English actor who has appeared in over 100 movies, scores of plays, and a plethora of television programs in his six-decade career. In 1955, he left the English stage behind and moved to Africa to manage a tea plantation, an experience that likely informed his heralded performance 20 years later in the movie White Mischief in 1987. I, I, I recognize the name, but I've never seen it. In his two years in Africa, he wrote plays and did service as a radio disc jockey. Upon his return to England in 1957, he joined the Old Vic Company. In addition to his performance at White Mischief, among his more notable turns as an actor before the camera came in the BBC TV production of Shadowlands in 86, in which he played C.S. Lewis, and of course, his turn as the ruthless South African heavy in Lethal Weapon 2. I thought he had done more. Like he seemed like an actor I'd seen in other things, but 
there wasn't anything in his filmography that jumped out at me that I'd seen him in besides this. Yeah, he he seems like one of those guys that I've seen in a bunch of stuff, but you know, I didn't bother to look him up. Mm -hmm. Then as Peter Vorstedt, who is the hitman, played by Derek O'Connor, <laughs> who was born in Dublin, Ireland with O'Connor. You know, I was waiting for the Irish, uh, but he was raised in London. He was a former member of the Royal Shakespeare Company and the Scottish National Theatre with many leading stage performances in Edinburgh and London's West End. His long and successful career includes numerous starring roles in U.S., British and Australian film and television. He was seen most recently by American audiences in the feature films Daredevil in 2003 End of Days in 99, How to Make an American Quilt in 95. He also made many guest appearances on TV shows like Alias from 2001, Murder, She Wrote, and his other British film credits include Terry Gillum's Brazil in 85, Time Bandits in 81, and Jabberwocky in 1977. Now, I know you and Laramie did, did y'all do Electra or y'all do Daredevil? Oh, uh, we did Electra. Okay. I was going to say, do you remember him in Daredevil? But I couldn't remember if that was one y'all did together or not. No, we did. We did Electra. I don't, uh, we'll probably do Daredevil one of these days. Yeah. Yeah. So for the bad guys, I think these two guys definitely did a good job of being good villains. And once again, every great action movie has to have a good bad guy. But most of the best action movies have really good bad guys. And I think they definitely fit the bill on this one. I would agree. Then we got Patsy Kinsett as Rika Vandenhaus. So beginning her career as a child actor, including the Rod Steiger film Hennessy in 1975, she gained attention when she acted in a string of commercials for Bird's Eye Frozen Peas. She then went on to appear in the films The Great Gatsby in 74, Gold in 74, Alfie Darling in 75, The Bluebird in 76, and Hanover Street in 79. Balancing a dual career as both an actress and a singer in 1983, she formed and became the lead singer of the pop band Eighth Wonder. The group produced several successful singles, including I'm Not Scared and Cross My Heart, before they split up in 1989. Fun fact, in the scene in which Leo is cleaning Riggs's uh, trailer, you can hear her song I'm Not Scared playing in the background. So she actually got her song on the soundtrack. Not too bad. She was in a bunch of other movies that I've never heard of after this, but she was not an actress that really made a big, big splash. Well, I mean, she kind of did there at the end, but um, <laughs> but um, good one, good um, one. I would say I was hoping that you have it. Do you have a list of people they almost went with? The only one that I had was Brigitte Nielsen was also considered to play Rico. Okay, because uh, I did not like Patsy Kensett uh, in this role. <laughs> I can't, I can't. Like I looked through her filmography to see what else, and there was almost nothing that really stood out to me as something that I had seen her in. Yeah. I I don't know. I just didn't. I thought she was probably the weakest part of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And not just because her storyline felt so forced. It just mm -hmm. the character just didn't work for me. Like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it's her fault or bad writing. But yeah, I think like, I think you're right. There's not there's not enough of a character there to really be developed so that she really didn't have much to work with. But I don't think she she didn't help it. Right. That's for it, sure. Another another kind of 80s trope. For, for female actresses in these type of roles is as long as you're pretty, you're perfect for the part. And I think she just, she was pretty. I mean, she wasn't like knockout gorgeous, you know, in my opinion. I mean, she was pretty, but I didn't understand why Riggs was drawn to her so quickly. And that was like that connection they had 
like you said, just it was this instant attraction and what it became. Probably the weakest part of the movie for me. Yeah. It would have been interesting to know what other actresses auditioned for the role that could have done more. Maybe they didn't want it because it didn't have much of a, a role anyway. I'm going to hit a few of these. Uh, those are like the main characters in the movie, of course. But I am going to hit some of the detectives that were part of the squad that we see that, you know, pretty much all get either blown up or pretty much blown up when they decide to kill off the uh, the police force. But I wanted to mention them because I've seen them in other things. So we'll talk first about Mark Rolston as Detective Hans. He is known for his supporting roles in popular films such as Aliens, Prancer, The Shawshank Redemption, The Departed, and the Saw film series. I did recognize him, but I kept getting him mixed up with somebody else. And then the only female detective, uh, Jeanette Goldstein, she played a uh, detective, Megan Shapiro. Her first film role was in James Cameron's film Aliens as the character of PFC Jeanette Vasquez, for which she received the Saturn Award for Best Supporting Actress. She later appeared in the vampire neo-Western horror film Near Dark in 87, directed by Catherine Bigelow, who was married to James Cameron at the time. Goldstein later appeared in several action movies, including The Presidio with Sean Connery. In 1991, she played Janelle Voigt, John Connor's foster mom, in Terminator 2, Judgment Day. So I've seen those memes where they show her, like, I never knew this was the same, you know, lady, uh, the one from Aliens and the one from Terminator 2. Uh, she was also in Titanic, which I realized today because my daughter wanted to watch Titanic for the first time. And so she has a very, very small role in that movie as well. So I guess she's a good relationship with James Cameron. You seen any of those memes I'm talking about? Probably, but you know, <laughs> she's not one that blew up. So yeah, she she, she was the one that went on the diving board, and the diving board blew up. Okay, yeah, I just I'd, I'd have to look at her picture. I remember that one, but I yeah. didn't write her. I didn't write her down. So. Gotcha. So then next we got Dean Norris as Detective Tim Cavanaugh. He's probably best known for playing DEA agent agent Hank Schrader on AMC series Breaking Bad, which is what I recognize him from. He was also in the spinoff Better Call Saul. He also portrayed town councilman Big Jim Rainey in the CBS series Under the Dome from 2013 to 2015. My wife and I are a big fan of that show. He also played mob boss Uncle Daddy in the TNT series Claws from 2017 to 2022. Throughout his career, Norris has acted in nearly 50 movies and more than 100 different TV shows. He's also appeared in films such as Hard to Kill in 1990, Total Recall in 90, Terminator 2, Judgment Day in 91, The Firm in 93, Starship Troopers in 97, The Cell in 2000, Evan Almighty in 2007, and Sons of Liberty in 2015. So Dean Norris and the first guy, Mark Rolston, look very much alike. So I've kept getting them mixed up whenever there's like a scene of all of them together. Yeah, no, as soon as I saw him, I'm like, is that... Is that Dean Norris? Yeah. Is that the... So I'm watching the movie, and so I immediately had to pull up my phone or my computer or whatever mm -hmm. I had. Like, that's... I. It's been long... So that, that should tell you how long it had been since I had seen this movie. Mm -hmm. Because since... I was like, that's the guy from Breaking Bad. That's the right. guy from Under the Dome. That's the guy yeah. from Claws. All right. three shows that I watched. <laughs> right. And I was like, that's the guy. And then, mm -hmm. like, I had I had completely forgotten or not even really known mm. that that was the guy from Lethal Weapon 2. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was the same way. I was like, that looks like Dean Norris. Like, I, you know, I knew the, I knew the face immediately. It's like, so I was cool to see that was actually him. So when I, cause when I pulled up my phone, 
I saw the other guy, Mark Rolston's picture first. I was like, well, maybe that's him because they 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 look somewhat similar. Like they're not exactly alike, but they're both kind of bald, you know, white middle aged white guys with bald, you know, kind of <laughs> kind of looked somewhat similar, same kind of build. So then I was going to mention Grand L. Bush because we just talked about him on Brewster's Millions. He well, played, I wrote him down. Yeah, he played Detective Jerry Collins. I thought this was great. Although he appeared in a cop in both films, his character in this film, Collins, is a different character because he played Boyette in the first movie. So I didn't realize that he was two different detectives in both movies. There was also Nestor Serrano. He was one of the cops. Yes. Yep. Yep. I did. Uh, I had him down, too. Because he he is one of those like he's on so many cop shows now like he just he found a way yeah. to yeah. to be a cop and mm-hmm. he just he, you know like he, it's almost guaranteed that he's a cop in everything that he's in. Mm-hmm. You know? Yep. Sometimes he's the dirty cop. Sometimes he's not. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I had him down. I was gonna kind of skip over much since you brought him up. So his first film was in 1986's The Money Pit with Tom Hanks and Shelley Long. Oh which I just saw part of it on TV. And as soon as I saw, it, I was like, Oh, I remember him in that movie. Of course he was in, he was in lethal weapon two. He was in bad boys, the negotiator empire secretariat, the insider runaway jury and the day after tomorrow. He's also been in TV shows like burn notice, homeland alias, blue bloods, law and order, and it's spinoffs SVU trial by jury and criminal intent. So yes, he's played a cop in probably almost all of those. Yeah, probably. <laughs> So the last one I'm gonna meet, I'm gonna uh, put on here because he was he's a that guy for sure, and we may have the same person, Jack McGee as ah. Mickey McGee, the carpenter. The crazy thing about him is both in IMDb and in Wikipedia, they have like no kind of biography on him at all. Like there's very little about him, but he's been over a hundred films and TV series. Like when you look at his filmography, it's just it's crazy how much how much it's uh. He's in there. So, of course, he's been in movies like Turk 182 and 85, Scrooge, where he plays a carpenter in 88, Backdraft in 91, Basic Instinct in 92, and The Fighter in 2010, which he won a couple or who's nominated for a couple of awards in that one. And then uh, my favorite trivia about him is he ad-libbed the line about the condom commercial during rehearsals. The cast and crew liked it so much they asked it to be kept in the film, which was a funny line. Yes. So. Yeah, that that was um, okay, yes, yeah, so you got everybody I had written down. Then. Okay, right. Yeah. Was there anything else in, that Jack McGee's been in that you were thinking of when you saw him? No, because he's one of those, like, I mean, back in the 80s and probably early, mid-90s, like, mm-hmm. I am I seem to remember him being, like, an, at least one episode of, like, every sitcom and every yeah. show. Yeah, yeah. You know, he, he just, you know, I don't remember if he ever had a leading role in anything, but, I mean, he was just, he was always in everything. Yeah, you know? yeah. I think I saw that like his biggest role is as chief Jerry Riley on the TV show rescue me, which I didn't watch. So that was probably his biggest role, but yeah, he always played like a blue collar, like a work, like a carpenter, you know, plumber, some kind of worker and uh, most of the stuff that he was in. All right. Well, iconic scenes, favorite scenes. You got a long list. Um, I don't know. Certainly know if it's a a long scene. Well, what's what's the iconic scene? So if somebody says yeah, "Need the Weapon 2, what's the scene that you think of first? Um, going out the window into the pool. Oh uh, yeah, when they when they meet yeah. Leo Getz. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good one. Uh, the bomb on the toilet or the yeah. bomb in the toilet. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's probably the scene that I think of 
which I, I was trying to remember when, once once the movie got started, I was like, is this one, in, is that in the second one or is that in the third one? Because I couldn't remember which one that was in. So. Yeah, I was having a hard time. I was like, did I see this one? Did they do the bomb on the toilet in the first one and then do it again? In the second? <laughs> no. And I was like, oh, no. And then um, I've also got the the helicopters at the end shooting up the trailer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which I also wrote, like, there has to be a less conspicuous way to try to show up and kill Riggs. Okay. Like, yeah. All right. So <laughs> finish your thought. But I, I this that reminds me of something I want to talk about. So go ahead. Because so. All right. So you want to kill Riggs. Mm-hmm. You show up with two giant helicopters. <laughs> right. And right. immediately start firing with massive, you know, automatic machine guns. Mm-hmm. Like, how is he not going to hear you coming? Right. Like, all right. So remember, I think we talked about this in the first one. So in the first one, when Murtaugh's Vietnam friend whose father's daughter was murdered. I can't remember his name now, but they're in the, they're in the house. And all of a sudden the helicopter just shows up and shoots them to the glass. And I remember thinking like, you didn't hear a helicopter coming. Like it's right outside the window. Like, how do you not hear that coming? And then, so when they, when I saw the helicopters coming, I was like, he still can't hear them. Like he's dead. You know, of course he's asleep or whatever. The, the dog comes to try to try to uh, max the dog, try to tries to come and wake him up or whatever. Uh, I just thought that was hilarious. Like, well, at least there's consistency of Riggs can't hear a helicopter, you know, unless it's right up on him, obviously. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was also like earlier in the movie during that opening, like uh, chasing, mm-hmm. you know, they, they crash the car and then a helicopter just shows up in the middle of downtown L.A. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That somehow the L.A. PD didn't know about. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you would think in a car chase, like the LAPD would have had one or two of their helicopters out. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like even even in the late eighties, I'm sure. But yeah, that was that was there was some silliness there. Mm-hmm. You know, but I mean, it, you have to suspend your disbelief and have fun with it. Yeah. Well, like like you guys were talking about with the Rambo movie, you just talking. Oh did. yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that's you know, those are action movies of the eighties. There's not. There's not. A, this was before, and it's, once again, before multiple viewings, like VHS was still just, well, I guess 89, it was, it was a little bit more advanced, but still it was more rentals. It wasn't people owning them. I think that came like closer to the 89, 90, where really heavy multiple viewing. So they weren't thinking about us watching things over and over again to pick out inconsistencies or, you know, plot holes. Right. Yeah. It was really, especially it was more for the theater experience that one time theater experience and being entertained for that hour and a half to two hours the bomb on the toilet scene is big for me and i had a little trivia about that that was that sequence was used as an early teaser trailer for the movie and the trailer ended with the toilet landing on murtaugh's car which i still think is hilarious and the voiceover announcer saying they're not taking any more crap (laughs) so like in the probably like early 90s like 90 91 somehow I got on Warner Brothers mailing list and I might have been because I was buying something for Batman. I found some ad in a magazine or something, but I would get like catalogs from Warner Brothers in the mail with like different movie, you know, merchandise or whatever. And they had a whole thing of Lethal Weapon 2 stuff because that was still kind of, they had like, they had jackets with the, you know, like the studio jackets that you had the logo on back. But I remember they had this little pin that was the toilet paper roll with the boom, you're dead on it. And I was like, <laughs> who would want to buy this? Like who would wear this pin that has this on it? 
And I just thought, but I don't know why that that still stands out to me. Like one of the things I saw in the catalog, like, why would anybody want to buy this? And it was like twenty five bucks. I mean, it wasn't even like everything in the catalog was way too expensive for me to buy, which is never, I never bought anything because uh, then you know it was expensive, and then you had to pay for shipping and handling, which was always going to be like fifteen or twenty bucks at that point. But yeah. it had some cool stuff in there. But um, oh, like I wonder had, how much. I wonder how much some of that would be now. Oh gosh. Yeah, you know, so it'd be on the rare side of things. Yeah. I see it. I think about it now. I was like, I need to probably pull it up online and see if anybody's trying to sell it on eBay or something and see if it's <laughs> see if it's still out there. But I won't do that now. Waste our time. But another time. I love that this movie opens with the car chase scene because it it just jumps right into the action, which I think was so smart for this movie to just jump right into the, the car chase. And of course, the banter about, you know, and, and you know, my other question is, why is Murtaugh driving his wife's brand new station wagon on the job? And even <laughs> after it's beat up, why is he still driving the new station wagon on the job? Like, don't, don't, don't they get a, an unmarked police car? Yeah, you would think so. Because there, there was always the this is my wife's car. This is this is a new right, car. Well, it's, right. it's still new. But... Yeah, it just doesn't look new anymore. And then, oh uh, yeah, and then and then when Leo opens the door and the door goes flying, gets hit by the door, oh, the door yeah. gets hit by the car and flies off. I that he's like that still makes me laugh. The infamous drive-through rant from Leo gets oh, is yeah. probably one of the funniest bits of the movie for sure. One we cannot repeat on the no. podcast but hilarious yeah he, when he tells you that you can't you can't do drive through right right because they're always yeah. gonna mess up the order which we would you know we would repeat that every time we'd go through a drive through uh after that which unfortunately is still true today <laughs> a lot of, yeah. we still check our food before we leave the leave the drive through these days well let's see here those are my iconic scenes since we're on the favorite scenes then mm-hmm. um i love the uh when they're looking at the uh, Peter, what's his name's uh, like ID? And he's like Peter mm-hmm. Ver. Peter Ver. <laughs> Never <laughs> right. mind. I'll just call you Adolf. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that that was. Um, and then just the first time you meet Leo, just Leo doing that. Okay, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just mm-hmm. the manic. Um, and then of course, obviously, you know, we've already kind of talked about it, but you know, when when. The main bad guy goes diplomatic immunity and then <laughs> Murtaugh shoots him in the head. And he's like, mm. it's just been revoked. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> diplomatic immunity. Yeah. One of my other favorite lines. I don't, say it's a, I don't think it's a favorite scene, but I get the callback of when the first the guy that was driving the car, when the big bad uh, Arjun or whatever has him come in, he was like, don't mind the plastic. I'm doing some repainting. And then, of course, he shoots the guy and he rolls him up in the plastic. And then when uh, Adolf, I guess, as we call it, as we were just called him, when he comes back in later and he's like, what are you doing? I'm making sure there's no plastic on the floor, <laughs> which I always thought was a good, good callback. And then I always another one, I think it was in the trailers, too, is when Riggs gets in the in their office and they come in behind him and he's like, sometimes I go crazy like now. And he goes, eeny, meeny, miny, hey, mo. And then he shoots the fish tank. And then they're all like, pick up the fish, use your hands. Like the fish are so uh, probably they're expensive or exotic fish or whatever. But yeah. I like that scene. And I do like the scene before that, the the whole setup of Leo going to the concert, like my friend wants to defect to South Africa. Oh, wait, they'd be great. He's like, no, I want you to talk him out of it. What do you mean? And then he brings him in. He's like, but but you're black. And then they have that whole conversation in the car where they're going over it. I, I, was I, funny. Was, 
I was wondering about something because you mm -hmm. and I are obviously a, a little bit on the, the older side when it comes to things. So right, right. we both grew up entirely in the 80s. Yes. And remember the 80s pretty well. Yeah. Do you think the younger audience even remembers what or how big anti, no. the anti-apartheid movement was? No. no. Because, I mean, I remember that was such a big thing in the late 80s early mm -hmm. 90s like mm -hmm. you know like that that being a subplot of this movie was not something that you would have had to at that time explain to right. anybody who was right. watching it yeah um now Very you true. might now you might have to explain why mm -hmm. you know what why what the that people meant. are protesting or what right. that even meant like mm -hmm. i mean because there i mean mtv would run the anti-apartheid ads I and mean, i seem to remember youtube being a big movement against mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. like just to, you know and so, like, I'm watching it. I remember it. I remember all of it very well. But mm -hmm. now, I, now it's like, it just it struck me because they it was like, okay, well, that's just part of the culture that I grew up with. Yeah, like yeah. I, I I remember it, but yeah, just, that's like that's, if I showed this movie to some twenty year olds, no clue, would they even get it? Like, yeah, yeah, it's definitely that's one of those things that we can say like a part of history that we lived that we experienced firsthand because I remember when. Nelson Mandela was still in prison and they were, you know, uh, demanding he be released. And then when he was really, I think that was, that was like early, I think that was like early nineties when like a year or two after this, when he got, when he yeah. got released and apartheid really ended like, and there, you know, there's some things to say that this movie helped to put that even in more, in more people's attention or their minds. So to help, that kind of change you know did it help change the law or not it's kind of nobody can really say but they do credit it as being one of the first major motion pictures to really address it as even as a subplot that it was still something that was a big deal right yeah i mean like i said i mean this movie was definitely a big and then mtv with all the concerts and, mm -hmm. and you know what's oh, the yeah. name name i can't the name is escaping me right now but he was always organizing big you know oh yeah like uh yeah i know what you're talking about the one that did like live aid and farm aid yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah i can't remember Those, his name either i know that they did a couple of big stuff and you know really started mm -hmm. putting it brought it to the you know brought it to the forefront but uh, yeah yeah and, no i mean that and then and then the tuna thing like that, that was also mm -hmm. another one like, yes yes they kill the two they kill the dolphins oh well, mm -hmm. yeah i mean maybe back then they did now at every doll every can of tuna is you know stamped dolphin save mm -hmm. and yeah. most kids probably don't remember how big of a like that was such a huge like mm -hmm. you know yeah yeah one of those investigative reporting kind of a things in the 80s that nobody knew was was happening you know uh for sure but yeah even going back to the apartheid thing like i if you go back and watch it now like you go back and watch scrooge that richard donner directed he has anti-apartheid like posters and things at the studio, like he puts it in his movies, like it's in the background. So it's not as much in your face, but he, that's something that he was, he was a big advocate for that cause as well. Even in some of his other movies, he, he tried to put it in, in the shots where you could see it, even if it was somewhat subliminal, I guess you would say, but I know going back and watching Scrooge, I always kind of catch it in the background. Yeah. So you mentioned it. So I'll bring it up. I was going to wait for trivia, but throughout several points in the movie, Riggs willfully mispronounces Arjun Rudd's name as Arian, willfully calls Peter Vorstedt Adolf and refers to their associates as the master race. These, of course, are all references to Adolf Hitler and the Nazis before and during World War II. Aryan race or master race was a Nazi ideological form, which became a concept for white supremacism. Giving you guys a little history lesson here. 
The South African practice of apartheid at the time was also another ideological form of white supremacy, which is likely why Riggs made these comparisons. Plus the fact that Warstedt looked like Adolf Hitler helped make the nickname stick. In addition, when Rika hands over the overnight faxes to her boss, Arjun, there is a stylized eagle on the wall behind him, reminiscent of the Reichsadler, the eagle clutching a swastika in its claws, a symbol of Nazi Germany, which was in turn based on the Achilla, the Roman eagle holding the SPQR symbol. But I did notice that behind his desk, and I was like, that looks very much like the Nazi eagle kind of symbol. I don't know, did you pick up on that watching it? No, I missed that one. Yeah. Yeah, if you go back to when she's in his office behind his desk, it's like a, it's just like a wall decoration. But I was like, man, that looks that looks a lot like a you know Nazi kind of a symbol. Well, not not the swastika, but like that right. eagle kind of outline. It's not there's not definition inside the outline, but it, it looks very similar. So when I saw that in the in the trivia, I was like, I definitely got to bring that up because it, it did catch my attention. Any other uh, favorite scenes? I think I've covered all of my favorite scenes. I mean, there's a couple other things I've got here on my list yet. I mean, Mel Gibson's love for the Three Stooges. Yeah, which is... I mean... Yeah. Yeah, that's... I mean, because he's watching them <laughs> on TV. He makes several references. Mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know... Because I know he was a big proponent. He's been trying... He was. I don't know if he's trying anymore. He was trying to get a Three Stooges movie made oh, yeah. for a while. Yeah. So that that clearly was something that he brought to the table. Right. Okay, so your kid is going to be in a commercial. And you're gonna, you're gonna get, you're gonna get the whole family. And we talked about something very similar with the first movie, but um, yeah, your your kid's going to be in the in a commercial. You get the whole family around. Don't you think at some point <laughs> before she like you know as soon as she accepts the job, you right. would ask right, you would ask her, hey. What company is the commercial for? <laughs> right, right. Like, you're not necessarily going to tell her, hey, you can't do it. But maybe, you know, you're just like, okay, well, maybe we don't talk about that at work because they're going to do exactly what, I mean, Riggs called, I mean, Murtaugh called it. He said, yeah. you know what they're going to do to me at work once this gets out. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, And that's exactly what they did, which Riggs might have been behind. But um, <laughs> right, right. Um, but yeah, no, like at some point, like, you know, if your kids are going to be in the commercial, I mean, she's old enough that she apparently can sign on and do stuff. I don't know how old she's supposed to be in in the movie at this point, but she's old enough. Yeah, I was and, thinking she's probably in her 20s at this point or like maybe 20 at this point. No, so, he said he said she's not old enough to buy beer, so she's not legal yet. So I was thinking maybe 19 or 20. But old enough to sign a contract, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mom or mom or dad, so she doesn't have to get parental permission to go be in a commercial. Right, right. So you know, not, I mean, you're not going to say, "Hey, no, you can't do that." But at the same time, like maybe you ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, hey, what what company is this going to be for? <laughs> I, just saying, like, I feel like that would have been a question at some point. Yeah, I had the same thought. I was when that scene came up, I was like. Come on, man. You're you're the you're a dad. You would you would have asked your daughter, like, who is this job for? You know, what is the company? You know, can we come watch you while you film the commercial? I mean, it, it works for the, you know, the comedy of the right. movie, but yeah, there's not much logic to it. It does sh- it does make some for some good jokes, but Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. When I did Jerry D's episode, he has a thing on his on his podcast where it's like 
the worst line or the, the cringiest line of a movie or something that, that do an impression of it. And right. mine was go spit when in the first movie, when uh, Murtaugh's being tortured, his response to the guys go spit. And I was like, what kind of a, like, is that some slang, like derogatory term that I never, I never heard before, but that, that line always stood out to me in the first one. Like I thought it was such a weird line. So at the end of that scene where the, the, at, at the tree, he tells Riggs, go spit, which made me laugh. Cause like, there's that line. Like it must be just like the Tamurtal <laughs> line. And then Riggs responds, Oh, that's right. You're too old for this. And says the line. For, so which calls back to the first movie. I thought that was really smart in that one little scene to like use those two callbacks to the first movie, which I thought was really funny. And it's like, and because he says it in such a nonchalant way, Oh yeah, I forgot you're too old for this, you know, which was, you know, which I thought was great. Well, and, you know, I, I know we talked about it when we did ours, like we mm-hmm. did the, you know, I'm getting too old for this uh, right. count from the yes. first movie. Yes. I don't remember what it was, but I think he only says it once mm-hmm. in the second one. Yeah. He doesn't even say it in this one. Riggs says it. I don't think Murtaugh said it at all in this one. Does I he? thought I thought Murtaugh said it when he was uh, repelling out of. Uh, oh, yeah, you're right. Yep. 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 You hear right. He does. The other kind of running gag that started from the first one that they use is definitely in this one. And they use it in the first scene of the third one is the whole one, two, three, go. Do we go on three or do we go as a one, two, three and then go, which they're doing when he's trying to pull him off the toilet that's got the bomb on it, which I thought yeah. was funny. And that the funny thing about they do that in the third one when it's like there's a bomb in the building or the building's on fire and they're going to the rescue, which I was thinking was in this movie. But that comes from the scene in the first one when is it the psychiatrist is trying to get the guys to all sing Silent Night or one of the cops is trying. He's like, come on, we're going to do it. One, two, three. And he says, one, two, three. And one of the guys comes in too early. He's like, no, not on three. One, two, three, then three. So it's such a throwaway part of the first movie that you almost forgets in there. But then they used it. And like they use it in two, three. I don't know if they use it in four, but I know that was like a running gag in the movies of the whole one, two, three go was a continual running gag for sure. Well, I know with like this movie, like uh, like early on when they're doing the straitjacket thing, mm-hmm. like you're just like, okay, well, clearly they're setting that up for something later on. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, and so of course it comes into play when they throw him in the water. Mm-hmm. He finds her dead. He has to, you know, get himself out of another straitjacket. Mm-hmm. And the same same thing with the nail gun. Yes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like when when the when they deal with the carpenter and he fires off the nail gun and they both go crazy. You're like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, you're just setting that up for later yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, that's gonna kill somebody in a <laughs> in a later scene. This is yeah. Once again, logic. So every other cop that they've they've killed is by surprise being blown up. Besides the one where the guys hang upside down doing his exercise, which I think was uh, Grandel Bush. And the guy comes in, he was like, uh, you're a good cop, aren't you? Or at least you were. And then he shoots him. But it's all been like very quick. Why is it when they get to Murtaugh, this guy wants to have a fist fight with him and then pull out a blade? It's like everybody else you've just completely like destroyed in like three seconds. Now you want to have this big fist fight that somehow starts in the living room and then ends up in the construction part. Like, it's like the way they switch to the two locations, like how do they even get over there? Yeah, because <laughs> you don't even see it in the background in that first area they're fighting at. So that was one thing I noticed when I watched it uh, yesterday. I was like, that was very convenient that he just happened to push him in that direction into 
the uh, construction for him to be close enough to get that nail gun. Yeah, and I mean, I know some people are like, "Oh, nail guns!" You know that nail, you know, nail gun didn't wasn't even. There are nail guns that are, are battery operated mm-hmm. that have air cartridges that would would fire. You have to pull a safety back. Yeah, so you would have had to. Yeah, so I don't know if they would have exactly worked that way. Yeah, and I nail guns are very powerful, but I don't know if they'd go through a skull. No. I'm not, I don't want to find out. No, but, no, no. Yeah. No, I did read, I did read some of it. They were saying that that, I don't know if it's so much for the ones that were made then, but they say nowadays there's, like you said, there's a safe there. You have to pull the safety back. And they said, yeah, it does push hard. It wouldn't be to the degree that it could pierce a body that like that in the movie. Like you're definitely going through a skull or whatever. So it makes for a good action movie though. Well, yeah. I mean, that's again, you just have to kind of put physics and reality aside sometimes. <laughs> right. and- and now, these messages. Now playing on a cell phone near you. A show for all the manly men out there. Where guys talk about their favorite movies and what they can teach us about being a man. Featuring the coolest guests. Murder somebody is not like killing an ant. The most gratifying laughs. It's Tombstone, what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> and a fresh take on movies like you've never heard before. This will be the thing that gets written on his proverbial tombstone. We aren't here to criticize the movies you love, but to praise them for how they apply to our lives as husbands, fathers, and really all men in general. So buckle up your seatbelts, because Manly Movies is here. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast catcher. And remember, man up. Hey, everybody. Do you ever just sit around with your friends and reminisce about days and how things used to be when you were a kid or a teenager or maybe even a young adult? The TV shows and the movies that you watched at the time and how things just aren't quite the same today? Well, let me tell you, I've got the place for you. My name is Chris Adams, and I'm the host of the podcast Retro Life For You. And here at Retro Life For You, we talk about and discuss movies and TV that is retro. And we are going back from the 80s and the 90s and into the 2000s. Hey, sometimes we might even touch back to the 70s if we're feeling good. If this is for you, make sure you look for us on everywhere that you can find your podcast at. Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, Google, Stitcher, or hosted on Anchor FM. And make sure you follow us on all the major networks and leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Look forward to hearing from you. What's up, dudes? I'm Jerry D. of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and Christmas? Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooged, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas Special. Plus classics shown every year. You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever, like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gagging with the Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle, and Chant with the Littles. So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories. Later, dudes. So, 
you were talking about they were attacking the cops and, and taking them out one by one. Yeah. Like even the beginning of it where they're like, these cops are getting in the way. We have to like when they show up at the, at Murtaugh's house and, and mm-hmm. you know, duct tape them up. Right. Right. Like if you just didn't say anything, how long would it have been before they figured out who you were? Like mm-hmm. if they, cause they didn't seem to have a clue until yeah. you attacked them. Like, <laughs> right. Right. You know, if you had just left well enough alone, like just mm-hmm. been like, well, where we lost, uh, mm-hmm. let's move on and pretend like, you know, but no, no. And then you then you start a war with the cops. Like, how do you not expect them to come back at you? Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Take yeah. your loss and, and try to move <laughs> on and Yeah. It's like I think they took like the diplomatic immunity and we kind of make you know, using that line, but it's very broad in this, you know, or a very loose a loose adaptation of what that is, at least for their in their mind. Like mm-hmm. we can do whatever we want and nobody can touch us. But it's like, yeah, hey, I don't think you can do everything anything you want. Yeah, uh, it doesn't quite work that way. Right, right. Because like, I mean, it does it does right. get you out of some stuff. Yeah. Cause like his whole thing is like, well, you know, this house is owned by the constants, you're standing on South African soil. And I'm like, Yeah, but I'm pretty sure if like if you're governed by the laws of South Africa, if you kill a cop in South Africa, I don't think you're going to get away scot-free. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, living living near D.C. for a while, mm-hmm. and, and my parents lived near D.C. for a, a lot longer. You know, you obviously encounter a lot of things that you wouldn't encounter living in Milwaukee or Atlanta. Right. Um, and, and there are the, the diplomats will try to use that as a way of getting out of a lot of things. OK. But basically, like at some point, the American government's going to call your government and be right. like, this is what this guy did. Mm-hmm. This is what's going to happen, or you're going to give him to us. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, the government is not going to want to fight you over, or, you know, fight the American government over, a, right? Of you know certain things. And mm-hmm. you know, if you start killing cops, the South African government's going to be like, we don't know who that guy is. You have it, you <laughs> right? Know? Right. They're going to disassociate themselves gonna, from him. Right. Sure. They're going to they're going to pull his diplomatic papers real mm-hmm. quick because they're not going to start an international incident over that. Right, right. You know, yeah, that's true. So, you know, he's only going to be able to use diplomatic immunity so much. And it's not like the cop at that point can't still arrest you. Mm-hmm. It just means, you know, you're not going to be held or the charges won't stick. You know, right, right. You may not get prosecuted. Mean, yeah. Yeah. The the cop is still going to put you in handcuffs and take you downtown. But I mean, it does. It does. I mean, it does make for a much more entertaining movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't watch this movie for the logic. Right. (laughs) But it's fun to talk about it. All right. So you ready to hit some trivia? Absolutely. Let's go for it. All right. So we'll just hit a few of these. The rest I'll put in the show notes. I did notice this, like we talked about the uh, waiting for the commercial. So while they're waiting for the commercial to start, they're actually watching an episode of Tales from the Crypt, season one, episode two, that was called An All Through the House, which was a Psycho Santa episode. It actually aired on June 10th, 1989. And it starred Mary Ellen Trainer, who plays the police psychiatrist. Some episodes in the series were actually produced by Richard Donner. So I figured it had to be some kind of, when I saw whatever they were watching, it was like some, you know, well, there's your Christmas. Uh, right. Yeah. There's, there, there's your, your Christmas connection. Uh, but it, I was like, that's it's like, are they watching a horror movie at eight o'clock on a, you know, Tuesday night or whatever it was that he called it out. So, but I did thought that was interesting that that was, that was a tie in to Richard Donner for sure. So despite the film's anti-South African stance, it was passed uncut by the South African censors 
and became a major financial success in that country, which I thought was very interesting. Very, very interesting. There is one deleted scene that I thought was interesting that we'll talk about. Uh, It was cut but restored in the DVD director's cut. It's an extended version of Leo trying to show Riggs and Murtaugh where the house with stilts is located. In the scene, they're parked off-road, and Leo is trying to recall the address. He keeps going on and on that the address has to add up to nine because, quote-unquote, nine is my lucky number. (laughs) Meanwhile, Riggs and Murtaugh look through a map book and randomly pick a street to go down. Following this scene is is the one already in the film of them finding the house. The deleted scene further explains Leo's remark, I told you, nine, that's my lucky number, after Murtaugh moans, this is the ninth possibility, Leo. You know, I can see why they cut it, but it does make that line make sense when they actually pull up to the house. See, I I have the director's cut on DVD. Oh, so you watch the director's cut? Yeah, I I didn't even know that was a deleted scene that was put (laughs) back in, because my... my like it's the director's cut DVD, but there are mm-hmm. no special features. Oh wow! Okay, like, I think the special feature is like here's a trailer. Like, <laughs> yeah, because I watched it on Max, I didn't get the I didn't get any special features to watch on this one. Sometimes I'll try to pull them up on YouTube, but I just ran out of time on this one. I had the director's cut of the of the first one on when I had it on DVD. So I don't know if I had the director's cut of this one. I might have when I had both of them together. But yeah, he's going on about numbers and he's punching into a calculator. Mm-hmm. He's like, it has to add up to twenty eight because my favorite number is nine, mm-hmm. and so I know that's the first number. And so then it can only, you know, because he's an accountant, like he's like mm-hmm. the following three numbers can only be this because <laughs> it adds up to that, right? And then it's a, it's it is so like just kind of bizarre, like because Mel Gibson just points in the book and says, "How about there?" Mm-hmm. And then they go there, and that happens to be the you know, <laughs> the right like, house. Wait, so your entire detective police work is just uh, there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that works. Hey, look at that. We got luck. All right. Right. If it's been a while since you watched it, when you rewatched it for the first time, or, I know, I guess a couple of months ago, when they pull up to the house and you see the surfboard in the car, like, did you remember that surfboard was going to was gonna become important later in the chase scene? Mm, like, as soon as the chase scene happened, then I remembered, so mm-hmm. probably. Yeah. I mean, it, it probably didn't you know, click right away. But... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. When I, I was like, when I, when they first put up, I saw the, I saw the car that was supposed to be being towed on the tow truck. And then the other vehicle with the surfboard, I was like, those two things are become very important in about in a few minutes. Cause I remembered that, how that chase scene ends good action sequences for sure. The car chase scene at the beginning and that of rigs on the truck and then being thrown in the front and kind of hanging on the front of the car that whole chase scene, uh, that's that was one of my favorite action scenes for the movie. What about you? Yeah, no, I don't. I which just reminded me of one of my favorite lines. Mm-hmm. You took a civilian on a bus. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but they make me stay in the car. Well, most of the time. Most <laughs> yeah. of the time. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, and then um, once again, another another part of dialogue that we cannot repeat. But I love the whole non-smoking in the captain's oh. office, and it's like. You see this sign on my desk, right? Yeah, it's just like this sign. But you know what? I don't, you know. <laughs> yeah. After the long spiel, which that made me laugh. Uh, but that's that's Riggs. Riggs being Riggs. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about box office and critical perception. Wrap this puppy up. Uh, so Lethal Weapon 2 was released in theaters on July 7th, 1989, and debuted number one at the box office, grossing $20 million. The only notable new release that weekend was Weekend at Bernie's, which opened at number eight 
and only grossed $4.5 million. Lethal Weapon 2 was the third most successful film of 1989 in North America, coming in after Batman, which was number one, of course, and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which was number two. It earned nearly $150 million in the U.S. and $80.6 million overseas. So it made it actually made more money than the first one, which one of the which was one of the few sequels at that time that actually made more money than the original. Because you know, this was still when sequels usually were not heralded as being very good. good. Yeah, like you had the exceptions, Empire Strikes Back and Godfather Two, but most sequels were not highly regarded. But I did want to kind of throw this out because I saw this and I was like, "This is amazing." Do you want to know what the top ten movies were the weekend that this opened? Sure. All right. So Lethal Weapon opened at number one. It dethroned Batman, which had came out the week before. No, it had come out two weeks before then. So Batman was number two. Number three was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Number four, Ghostbusters 2. Number five, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Six, Dead Poets Society, which I didn't even realize that came out in the summer. Number seven, The Karate Kid Part 3. We mentioned Weekend at Bernie's at number eight. Do the Right Thing was number nine, and Great Balls of Fire was number 10. There's a forgotten 80s movie for you. Uh, Great Balls of Fire with Dennis Quaid playing uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. But to think that at, at, at a certain point in July in 89, you could go see Man, Indiana, a... Indiana Jones the, and Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Batman, or Lethal Weapon 2. Well, and, and I know we'll get there eventually, as you mm-hmm. talked about in Rambo. Yeah. With uh, UHF, because I know that's a big thing that like Weird Al will talk about with UHF. Mm. He's like, they tried to release me the same like weekend or the same like month that all of these other movies came out. <laughs> like, could right. you see them trying to release like Batman and Lethal Weapon two now? The same like basically like two weeks away from each other. Yeah. No. 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 One of them. One of them would have been moved up or moved back. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Some of the other ones, like you'd counter-program, like, yeah, sure, I'll release Dead Poet Society the same weekend as Batman because right. you're not necessarily getting the same audience. Right. But, well, that's, that's the funny thing. So based on this, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Batman came out the same day. Hmm. So there's a little bit of county pro- counter-programming there. But that's back when studios really, like, studios now really won't put like Warner brothers isn't going to put out the new fast and furious the same weekend as Marvel's going to put out one of their tent, we say tent pole movies. But back then the studios would say, who's going to win. And they would put two movies. They expected to do well up against each other to see who was going to be number one. I don't think they have the courage to do that as much anymore. No. And, and they also, I mean, they did a lot more counter like in a movie, like if like you put out fast and the furious, now you're going to put out, so if there's a movie that is a guy right that you know is going to make all the money that weekend you're yeah. also going to release a girl movie yeah the you're same have, weekend yeah because have, you know go ahead you're going to try to do the you know split the group you know so the guys can go over here and the girls can go over here mm-hmm. they can both see a movie and then get back together and, you know yeah yeah like today would be like uh fast x opens and so was uh the book club the next chapter whatever you know the... Right. Yeah. <laughs> so you're you'll you know, you still do get some counter programming, mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time, like a movie like Fast X or you know whatever that you know is going to dominate for a week mm-hmm. or two. Yeah. You're not about to try to release another big tentpole movie, mm-hmm. like even if it's you know a kids movie versus Fast X that is not getting kids. You're just not gonna. 
You're not yeah. going to risk it. Not right. anymore. Not anymore. Right. Not that way. Yeah. But yeah, that, I, that list is an amazing, that weekend, that week, I we must've been going to the movies like every other day. <laughs> that uh, Right. Cause I'm trying to think like, I know of all the movies listed there, I saw Batman in the theater. I saw honey. I shot the kids in the theater. I saw Ghostbusters 2 in the theater. I saw Indiana Jones Last Crusade in the theater. I saw Weekend at Bernie's in the theater. So, what, five of the top ten I saw in the theater. Maybe not that weekend, but that also shows how long they stayed in the theaters because, you yeah. know, I, I, I had to have seen them at least the first couple, you know, the first month they were released. Yeah, I've seen all of those movies. I know Batman and Honey Are Shrunk the Kids are the only two. I can distinctly tell you, mm-hmm. I know I saw those in the theaters. The rest of them I probably saw on VHS. Yeah. Well, now, Ghostbusters 2, I remember my parents taking me and my sister dropped us off to see that movie. Mm-hmm. And they went off and saw something else, <laughs> which in retrospect was probably a bad idea. But uh... <laughs> Right. Yeah, I will say like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, I saw later. Like I didn't see that when it first came out. That was one of those kind of word of mouth movies that other people said went and saw and said it was pretty funny and i think the same thing like weekend and bernie's i wanted to see when it first came out but i didn't get to see it for a couple of weeks my sister actually saw it before i did um because she went with some friends to see it but all right critical reception rotten tomatoes has an 82 percent on the tomato meter and a 77 percent audience score imdb 7.2 out of 10 with viewers and a 70 on metacritic so that's one of the few this is one of the few movies where imdb 7.2 7.2 with viewers and 70 on Metacritic are, critic are almost identical. Usually Metacritic is like way lower. But this was one that the, the critics actually, you know, actually liked. Right. For I, sequel I saying a lot. I can't say I disagree with any of those. No. You know, I, I'd say I'm right in line. Mm-hmm. I think when I, I think when I rated it, I think I put a 7 on yeah. it for IMDb. Yeah, I might have been like tomato, be like like low eighties. I think is where I had it because I did enjoy it. I think I've yeah. got the first lethal weapon is like a more of a mid eighties. So there, I can't really say it's better than the original, but it's one of the few sequels that I would say is is equally as good and enjoyable. Like I I I appreciate both of them for what they they are because they are different in some in tone, especially. But right. I enjoy them both for what they are, and I think they both stand. Both of them can stand alone. Like, even if you never saw the first Luther Weapon, you could watch this one and still enjoy it. You don't need a whole lot of backstory to understand the dynamic because they add enough new stuff in there to kind of keep you involved. But I think they both kind of stand on their own pretty well, which is rare for sequels, I think. Correct. At that at that point, anyway, because every other sequel is just trying to redo what they did in the first one and just, you know, just retreads. And this didn't this was not a sequel that felt like a retread of the first one at all. Which is why I think it was good they took out the torture scene because like Mel Gibson got tortured in the first one. We don't need torture scenes in the second one. Like you know, just redoing what you did already. So, all right, man. Well, anything else you want to add before we close this episode? No, I'm going to take off my badge, which immediately makes me not a cop, and now I can go do whatever I want. Because uh, <laughs> that's all it takes, right? Uh, right, right. Every cop movie we've seen, that's what they do, right? Yeah. Um, no, I, it's unfortunate that we won't be able to do the third one unless you break the rules. It's always possible. I'm looking forward to whatever it is we do next, but uh, it won't probably be Lethal Weapon. So. <laughs> nope. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we'll do a bonus episode just for the fun of it, just just for kicks and giggles. 
So, because I, I wouldn't mind rewatching the third one. I haven't. It's been a. I definitely. It's definitely been a long time since I've watched that one. So, yeah, it's um, me as well. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Nicholas, for joining this episode. Always a good time to have you. So, what's going on with pop culture roulette? What are you guys talking about? I love the episode you guys just did about uh, Ryan Seacrest has taken everybody's job, which I thought was brilliant. Right now, we're just kind of doing some some regular episodes. We're doing some news episodes. I got mm-hmm. a couple. I I got a couple ideas cooking. A, another really big bracket that's coming. But mm-hmm. I'm I'm still trying to crack the code on how to set that, so I'm not quite ready to announce that. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. Laramie Laramie gave me some good ideas on how to crack that one. I just have to to sit down and, and start writing it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, and as Nicholas mentioned, we're both going to be guesting on uh, moving panels here. I think in August, right? A couple weeks from a couple now, of weeks. Yeah, we're doing a big bracket in that one. I won't. I won't spoil it because I don't know if Laramie's really talked about it yet. But uh, so definitely keep an eye out for that. And we'll. That's that's going to be a fun one. I hope <laughs> we we're having to watch a lot of movies to to get ready for it. But it's been uh, it's been fun to do to those. But. All right. Well, thanks everybody. Be sure to follow, subscribe, rate and review both of our podcasts. You can still support the show through buymeacoffee.com. You can buy a t-shirt from the website or actually now we've switched our merch over to tpublic.com and I've just been releasing some new designs. So I'm kind of doing two new designs every week. I've worked on some t-shirts inspired by movies like Top Gun, Predator, Major League and Better Off Dead, which is a, a fan favorite for sure. So check those out. Uh, you can you can click the link on our website, but you can also go to T Public and see those there. If you enjoyed the episode, share it with someone who loves 80s flicks. Follow us on social media. We're now on Threads, as well as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Nicholas, for being here. I'm Tim Williams for the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Good night, good people. still here? It's over. Go home. Go.